Do you want to hear what the best and most influential minds in the golf and turf industry have to say on issues affecting the world of golf? Turf grass and turf equipment? That's why I'm here. Tune in as Steven Tucker takes us on a journey with some of the nation's best minds and finds out what they think. If you were looking for excitement, you have found the right place. Welcome to the Turf Addict Podcast. All right, everybody. Uh, finally back after a very long hiatus, I believe. Um, and just uh, just wanted to start up uh, this new year coming with a new podcast. And uh, why not bring out the CEO, owner, um, grinder extraordinaire, um, Mark Pilger from SIP Grinding. Mark, uh, glad to have you here. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Well, what are you, Mark? Are you the CEO? Are you the owner? Are you a president? What, what C- is CEO is probably a little bit too grand for the company. We're not quite that big. My official title is president and owner. Okay. Uh, we're basically a family-owned business. Uh, my wife, my son, my daughter, and I all own it together. And my, my brother out in uh, Washington owns a little stake in it, too. Okay. So, um, is it the name? I've heard it called Simplex. I've heard it called Ideal. I've heard it called Peerless. I've heard it called SIP. Um, what is it? The, if you go back to the very beginning, um, the company actually was originally called the Root Brothers Manufacturing Company. Okay. And they were based out of uh, Upper Sandusky, Ohio. It probably got started in the mid-1880s. And by the 1890s, uh, they moved their operations to Plymouth, Ohio. And through a series of marriages and things like that, they merged with a couple other companies, eventually became the Fate Root Heath Company. Uh, One of the employees at one of those companies was playing with an idea for a a real grinder. And they gave the idea to Percy Root, who was the son of the owners at the time. He was, I think he was just 20 years old. He didn't actually have a degree, but he was one of the few people who actually had some engineering training. And he developed the product and got it on the market, the very first one, in 1902. And through the mergers and everything like that, they sort of dropped the name Root Brothers. It became Fate Ruth Heath, and it actually was, eventually became the SIP division of the Fate Ruth Heath Company. Uh, It was called the SIP division because they had three different main product lines. Uh, They had the Simplex line, the Ideal line, and the Peerless line. And at the time, the Peerless was the the top-of-the-line professional-grade equipment. The Ideal line was the the um, middle-of-the-line semi-professional, and the Simplex was the uh, homeowner's type of of, uh, equipment. Um, And it was the SIP division probably from the late teens or early 20s all the way through. Um, When they sold the company. Percy Root actually uh, was the engineer for the company and president of the SIP division from the time he started it in 1902 until he passed away in 1963, I believe. And his brother died a year later. Uh, The family decided to sell off the business, and they sold it to a a company out of Lansing, Michigan, which uh, just the SIP division. So it became the SIP division of first Universal Gear Corporation, then American Marsh Pumps. 
the owner of Universal Gear American Marsh Pumps, uh, his business was going out liquidating companies. And so when he bought SIP, he owned it for about 20-some years, eventually moved it to Florida. But in the 20-some years that he owned it, he never made a single engineering change to it. Hmm. And so they went from being market leader in the 60s to being almost non-existent by the 1980s. And so that's when I bought it, was in 1988. Uh, and it had Universal Gear Division, it had the Whittington Vacuum Pump Division, a bunch of other, these other divisions, and, it, and of course the SIP division. And it took me a while to figure out that the SIP division was the one that had the most potential. So we either sold off or shut down the other divisions and focused on SIP. Uh, we changed the naming scheme a little bit so where the Peerless is now Real Grinders, Ideal is now Bed Knife Grinders, and Simplex is everything else. Okay. Uh, so we, we kept all three names because exactly as you said, even when I bought the company in 1988, there were people out there that called us SIP, Peerless, Ideal, Simplex. Depending on what product they had bought, that's the name of the company they had associated with. So we wanted to keep all three names as part of the name. So it's, it's SIP Corporation, Simplex, Ideal, Peerless. Okay. Long answer, but anyway. All right. No, good, good to know the history so people have a little bit better understanding on what, what the company's about, where it came from. Um, but the bigger question is why – would you go into grinders and buy a company with grinders? You know, me knowing where you were prior, yeah. not much in the golf business, and then jumped headfirst into it. What what gave you the itch to come listen to a bunch of technicians that are hard-headed, that don't want to listen, and then develop grinders uh, for a living? Well, like I said, there are three different divisions that were still active. Uh, it was the SIP division, the Universal Gear division, and the uh, winning the vacuum pump division. Most of our sales when I first bought the company were from Universal Gear. And they made a really neat little gearbox that had a high ratio in a single stage. Uh, if you look at a standard helical gears or spur gearbox, the maximum you can get is a 20 to 1 ratio. These had 80 to 1 ratios in a single stage. The problem was I was competing against companies like Sumitomo, multi-billion dollar company. Right. And to try and resurrect Universal Gear to compete with them just really wasn't viable. Uh, the Whittington vacuum pump was an old technology. It actually, what they made is a, it was a water jet Venturis that created the vacuums. That was, and it was used by hospitals to create their central vacuum system. Any place where a, a doctor would say, I want suction, you hook up to the central vacuum system, our vacuum uh, pump would do it. The problem with standard vacuum pumps is they use lubricants. And when you mix lubricants in a vacuum, it creates a vapor, and the vapor becomes explosive. Mm -hmm. When you use a water venturi system, there's no uh, lubricants in contact with the, with the vacuum system, and it's much safer. Not quite as efficient, but still safer. There's still a couple of hospitals out there that have our vacuum pumps and use them. They've been mm -hmm. using them for 50, 60, 70 years. So there wasn't, there wasn't much of a market there, and... My background, I worked in the aerospace industry. I worked in uh, biomedical industry. I worked in a bunch of different industries. I just wanted to find a company that I could use my engineering skills and had a, at least a national market. I didn't want a local market that might be controlled by a local economy. I wanted something national. And so SIP division fit the bill on that one. And so probably about three years after I bought the company in the 
early 90s, maybe 91, I decided just to focus on SIP. Um, I went to the first trade show out in, in Anaheim in 89, uh, Las Vegas in 90. Went to those shows by myself, wore a suit and tie. Uh, I had to set them up by myself and everything like that. But in any case, uh, it was obvious that there was, by going to those shows, it was obvious that there was still a lot of name recognition for SIP. It was a little frustrating and a little encouraging at the same time to be at the show and have people walk by my booth, stop and do a double take, and say, I thought you were out of business. So people still knew the name, whether it was the Simplex, Ideal Peerless, or SIP. And so I then went out and started looking at what the competition was doing. And as it turns out, they weren't that far ahead of me. Uh, if you look at it, it was I bought the company in 88. It wasn't until the early 80s that Express Dual came on the market. Uh, and it wasn't until the mid-80s that Foley came out with their automatic spin and relief grinder. So they only had a couple years jump on me. They had a lot better market penetration than I did. They had a lot better dealer representation than I did. But I wasn't too far behind. And so I think in 91, I developed the, uh, the Ideal 55 and 65, which was just the next generation of the existing bed knife grinder we had with an automatic version of it. And then in 92, I developed the automatic spin and relief grinder. It was a suspension-type grinder, very similar to the Foley's at the time. And that was the first real engineering that I had done as part of the, of the uh, Universal Gear SIP company that I had. And when your company is on the line and you don't get the products out there, it's very motivating. And I learned a lot in designing those two, two grinders initially. So... It wasn't so much that I wanted to get into the golf course industry. It's just that I wanted to get into an industry where I could use my engineering talents and that I could be competitive in. Okay. Well, you know, <clears throat> during that whole process, um, we got to know each other. Um, so I know I have a better story to tell, but I'm going to let you tell it since it's, you're the guest. Um how did we meet, and uh, what were you thinking when we initially met? Well, it was a couple of years after that that I developed the, the, the Peerless 2000, which is right. the tabletop grinder that's the basis for all for our, our real grinder today. And um, it was it, it had become pretty successful. I mean, there were a lot of people out there that got the concept of it, really liked the concept of it. Um, and this is about the time that... Uh, IGCMA was starting to become a, a concept, and several of the guys who were working in the leadership of IGCMA had our grinders. So I had tried, I want to say many times, but it was probably just several times, to get a demo with you. And it was a little bit frustrating because you were only about 45 minutes from the plant, and I could never get you to return my calls. And then one year at one of the trade shows, um, the IGCMA group of guys came by the booth and we were in there talking. And I can't remember, this is, I get a little fuzzy here, but I can't remember if I recognized you and asked the guys why you weren't coming in my booth or if I didn't recognize you and asked the guys who you were. But, uh, it, you know, uh, Stephen Tucker, yeah, I says, uh, he's not coming in the booth. He says, no, no. And again, this is where my recollection gets really fuzzy. I think it was Patterson that said, oh, don't worry about him, he's just stuck up. 
And I think it was Mike Kriz that <laughs> came to your defense and says, no, no, he's not stuck up. He's just an express guy. I says, okay, okay, good enough. So you never came in the booth, wandered off. And then uh, at about the same time, I was also going up to Lake City every year, putting on a, a one-day class for the students there. Morning would be um, a classroom presentation, and in the afternoon we did hands-on. And one of the things I did was I made custom pie tapes with Lake City logo on it for all the students, gave each student one. And I think it was a few years later after that, I was over at Patterson's, and I think we were testing a new mounting bracket for an indexer. And he got a call from you while I was there. And I th apparently you asked him, what you up to? And he says, oh, I'm here with Mark Pilger from SIP. We're testing his new mounting bracket for the indexer. And apparently, again, you'd heard about what I'd been doing at Lake City. And we'll tell Mark that I really appreciate the support he's giving to Lake City, especially the pie tapes. John relayed the message to me. And I then, in a voice that I wanted <laughs> to be loud enough to make sure that you heard me, uh, said, well, tell Stephen, if you'd like to see how the rest of the system works, I'd love to come by and show it to him. And you readily agreed. I said, okay. It took us a couple months to get hooked up, but uh, I came by uh, to show you the grinders. And first, we started talking about things, and you know, I kind of wanted to get a feel for what was important to you. And uh, I think one of the things you did is you showed me your granite table. Right. And you're showing me how it works and, and all these types of things. And you got to the part where you adjusted one roller a quarter of the amount that it was off, and then you adjusted the other roller a quarter amount that it was off. And it took me a minute to get my head around it to try and figure out what the heck you were doing. And once I realized what you're doing, I realized it was exactly the same thing we were doing with the concept that we had for leveling the grinder out on the, or the, the cutting unit on our grinder by lifting the rear roller, setting the front roller to the reel, and then adjusting the roller by half to get it to be parallel to the front roller. Once you understood that, that my concept of a, a paralleling the reel was very similar to your adjusting of the parallel the reel, we just hit it off, spent the whole day talking, and I never ground a reel for you. So I had to come back the next day to ground reels for you. Yep, I remember that. Am I close? Yep, I mean, that's, it's pretty similar, and I think... Um, I think initially, and it kind of leads me into my next question, but when, when I know as far as technicians go that when we get to learn a certain way of doing things and we know that we're getting good results, it's very difficult to change that. Because it's, I, think, I think it's a lot like uh, golf course superintendents when they have a certain program that they use on greens getting them to stir away from that if it's working is fairly difficult. Yeah. Um, and that's why, you know, selling chemicals and things like that is difficult because people already know what they want to use in it. And it's not everyone wants to, you know, go down another rabbit hole and try to, you know, we've, I've spent years trying to figure this out. I've got it figured out. The last thing I want to do is go spend another five years trying to figure the other thing out. Same, yeah. same kind of thing happens in engineering. Yeah. It's, it's what we call the law of unintended consequences. Right. Where if you make a design change to something, it affects something you didn't want it to affect, and it screws you all up. So you really want to, whenever you do make a change, you want to really be careful to make sure it doesn't have some unintended consequences. Right. So uh, I know my son, he just hates it when I come in with a design change because yeah. you know, he doesn't know what it's going to affect and how it's going to be bad or good. Right. And, and I, 
Uh, if you remember when we had that first discussion too, I wasn't as worried about me knowing how to use the grinder as I was about training someone else to. Mm -hmm. And that's always been my focus with you for the last whatever how many years it's been is, look, the more people that can understand it, the easier it is to sell it because, you know, people want to feel comfortable, especially when you're spending uh, uh, quite a bit of money that you're not going to spend for at least another 10 years. When you make that commitment to buy a grinder, you want to know you're going to a be able to produce the quality that you've been producing at least, if not better, right. um, and at the same time have some confidence that you're not going to have problems. Yeah. The last time, last thing anyone wants to do is invest a whole ton of money and then I don't know if I can make this thing work or not, but you know Patterson and Stevens seem to be able to make it work. I should, yeah. and, and that isn't always the case if you don't really invest a lot of time and effort into understanding how it works and and the impact it can make in the long run can be can be really good so um that in a nutshell is where i remember being very stubborn i would say in the way of once i've figured something out i wanted to refine that Mm -hmm. not go start something new and work years trying to get it back to where i was at that's kind of like Porsche's philosophy, right? Mm. They've got the worst layout of an of a engine drivetrain that you can have, but they've been doing it so long, yep. they make it work perfectly. So there, there is that. You, if you've got something that works or you know how to make it work, do you change or don't you? Well, and, and I think in my, in my case, in which this is the next question, you know, grinding reels is obviously a controversial issue. I mean – Everybody has learned how to grind reels from the person before them, generally, uh, or someone from a, one of the manufacturers has come in and shown them how to do it, or they just tried to figure it out on their own and you know kept trying things until they got lucky and that's what they've been doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so there's so many different ways of doing things, and you know, I think the vast majority of technicians are also afraid of change. You know, they like consistency. They like knowing what to expect and what's going to show up. And, you know, I'm, you know, we're getting ready for our LPGA event and I'm looking at what heights we were mowing at last year. You know, evolution, you know, things could change, you know, and and that's something that I had to, I had to get past. I think, you know, having you come in and spend the day with me and us talking about the grinders gave me a different outlook on not just grinders at that point. It was about other equipment as well because I was a little more closed-minded because I thought I had the perfect solution. Um, and for the most part, not seeing a whole lot of evolution from anybody, you know, whether it be Express Dual Foley or, or SIP, everything seemed to be very similar and nothing was ever getting any better. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the big selling point for me uh, was when you went and visited one of the manufacturers and changed the bed knife grinder from what it was originally and how it was mounted to what it is now and mounting from the pivot bolts. Because I always felt, no matter what manufacturer it was, that we got bed knives wrong from the get-go, that we weren't doing it right because they weren't mounted in the frame the same way we were grinding them. And so that was a frustrating thing for me when you're trying, you know, I'm a perfectionist as most know, I want it right. Um, But 
it's very difficult for me when I know it's not right and it could be. And that no one's investing any time or effort into it. I mean, I remember when we were doing IGCMA's study guides and thinking, you know, the leveling process or backlapping. How was I going to, how are we going to cover those topics when some of that stuff I was like, mm, you know, how are you going to cover it the right way? Because we don't have anything to do these things the right way with, yep. you know, and then, you know, it evolved into the high to cut gauge and other things that, and tools that, in my mind, were inadequate for what we were trying to achieve. Yeah. You know, when you're trying to achieve perfection and you don't have the tools to do that, then you that's where technicians start, okay, well, let me figure this out. Yeah. Um, of course, the big thing that's caused, that's driven all that is the height to cut. Yeah. You know, when I first got in the industry, there's still uh, people cutting their greens at a quarter of an inch, three sixteenths, whatever. And, you know, the old old cutting units had 30,000, 40,000 adjustment for for um, real taper and all kinds of things like that. And so now, you know, heights of cuts, what are you cutting your height to cut now at, uh, at your course? Let's just say it's, it's, sh- it's, it's short. It's uh we're hovering around a hundred. Let's uh, just say that. So yeah. hovering, hovering <laughs> higher or lower than a hundred. Yeah, something so. like that. Yeah. And you know, if you're if you're cutting at a quarter of an inch and you're trying to get everything within ten percent, that's twenty five thousandths. But if you're cutting at a hundred thousandths, you know, ten thousandths is ten percent. Mm-hmm. And so you've got to get everything within that ten thousandths range. And figuring out how to do that, especially when you're trying to deal with the different manufacturers of the mowers and how they make their bread knife shoes and all these kind of things, uh, it's it's not. Uh, it's not trivial. It right. really is not trivial. Well, and I think we could talk about this for days. I yeah. think the the we have. yeah we have, and uh, those have sometimes come out with new designs of things and frustrated your son. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but you know, it's one of the things that I talk about in, or used to talk about in the classes that I taught at GIS, and that is, it's not necessarily about the one thing. It's not about one measurement on one item. It's about trying to get all of those measurements that are not perfect as close together as you can so that you have a cutting unit that's as close to perfect as you can make it. Because we know we can't make it perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, being as close as you can get uh, minimizes the chance for that cutting unit to not do what it's intended to do. Well, and that's the thing. If you look at part of the problem that we work at solving is there's a lot of things that you just can't measure at all. You know, how far off your, your bed knife edges from your mounting point was something that you couldn't measure before, unless you had some really fancy setup. Uh, when I was at that manufacturer, that's what they did. They took the bed knife that I ground with my bottom support, measured it on a uh, surface plate with these blocks, and, you know, they came back and told me that uh, my top surface was out of parallel to my pivot bolts, by 15,000, they, they told me it was out by 15,000 of an inch, or 6,000, 7,000 of an inch, I guess, 7,000 of an inch. And I said, there's no way it's out by 7,000 of an inch. I went and measured it with my equipment that I had there and showed it was flat and parallel to less than 1,000. They said, oh, no, no, it's it's flat uh, to within 1,000, but but it's out of parallel to the pivot bolts by 6,000. I said, oh, of course it is. How? But how parallel is it to the bottom of the bed knife? It's within 1,000 to the bottom of the bed knife, I said, you can't have it both ways because of the way you guys make the bed knife shoe. And he agreed with me. 
but it was on the trip home. And again, I was driving from Minneapolis back to Tampa. So I had two and a half days to think about it. That's where I did my best engineering, by the way, is, is I'd go out in the field, somebody would have a problem and I could think about it on the whole, on the drive home. And I realized on that drive home that there was a good reason to, to grind the top of the bed knife parallel to the pivot bolts versus grinding it to the bottom. If you grind it parallel to the bottom, then you eliminate uh, drag mark variations. Sure. But if you grind it parallel to the top, you eliminate the same effect that you have as if you have a tapered reel. So that when you bring it up to adjust it, there's very little twisting of the bed knife needs to be done. And so that's, that was the uh, origin of the V support. And um, it, it's, an, it's still an optional pallet, but I'd say 70% of the grinders we sell go with the V support. Yeah. I mean, for me, that was the game changer for, you know, with the practices that we have in place, I was hit or miss, honestly, on my side from the real grinder, because we had the ability to still level the cutting unit to the level at which we've done it. Mm-hmm. Um, the big selling point for me, which drew me in was the bed knife grinder and knowing that we could get to that level of accuracy that I was looking for. And that's really all it needs. I mean, you get one product in the door and then it, okay, well, then I guess I need to look at the other one. And, and, and that's generally how it works. But I guess all of this to ask one question, and that is, you know, what do you feel? I mean, a lot of technicians do things different ways and, and, and they're not necessarily afraid of change, but when they got something that works, they want to stick with it. What makes your grinders in your mind? I know why I choose it. But from your standpoint, better than the other manufacturers, or what's the selling point of going with SIP grinders versus the competition? One of the things I like to say is that you can grind the way that you want to grind, the way that you used to grind with our grinder. And there's a couple different uh, philosophies of grinding. Impact grinding. Uh, one, of the, one of the manufacturers says you have to impact grind. It's bad to, to do a light grind. Um, and then the other manufacturers, oh, no, no, it, impact grinding is bad. You don't want to impact grind. You want to light grind um, because it's bad for the bearings or, you know, whatever reason that they have. And it, it turns out that both of those manufacturers want you to grind that way because of the limitations within the grinder themselves, okay? Uh, with our grinder, we let you grind the way that you want to grind. If you want to impact grind, you can impact grind with it. If you want to do a light touch-up grind, you can do a light touch-up grind with it and still maintain the precision of the grinder. So it really is much more flexible in terms of the kind of technique or process that you want to use. Um, you can adapt the impact grinding process that you've always been using to this. You can even do a touch-touch grind on it if you want to. You can do the, the um, um, light grind so that you, get, you, you don't get the uh, uh, built-in relief that they talk about. So that's probably the first thing. But then once you understand that, then it, that's not the real advantage to the, the grinder itself. That's just the advantage to the user. Once you get into understanding the grinder, the first thing is that it's much more precise. It will allow you, the, the other manufacturers either don't try and get the taper out, or if they do, they, they measure off the real shaft. Now, measuring off the real shaft, that's something we invented back in 1902. And the only difference between the gauge that we used in 1902 and the ones they use today is it's a digital uh, dial indicator on it to measure the difference in the real shaft. Uh, the problem with measuring off the real shaft is it's not a precise surface. And I found that out the hard way. 
I was doing a multi-day demo at Pinehurst, and they were going to buy three sets of grinders from me. And I went in and ground a set of uh, Toro mowers and went back in the next morning, and two of the three mowers couldn't get adjusted. They were, they were cone-shaped so badly that the bed knife ran out of adjustment. And so at the time, I was measuring off the reel shaft. And it just so happened that I got two of the worst reel shafts, measured them at the exact worst p- place I could have, and as a result, ground a 35,000 cone shape into the reel. What I had to do was I actually went in and measured the reel shaft like at five different places on those reels and reground them and got the taper out. That was the last time I ever measured off the reel shaft. I left there, went to the first hardware store I could find, and bought a seamstress tape and started using a seamstress tape. Uh, I bought a pie tape from one of the manufacturers. That doesn't work because it's spring steel. It just, it won't, you can't pull it tight enough to be consistent. And so I sort of merged the two together, made a pie tape out of a, a soft, flexible material, mylar. And that really is the um, key factor in making our grinders really precise. At that point, we can now grind the real cylindrical within two thousandths of an inch versus the competitors can do it at if they do it at all, 10 to 15 thousandths of an inch. Um, so the, the, you get the precision. Uh, the next thing was is that because of the way we make the, the table is made, that there's no adjustments in the table, uh, the top of the table is, is machined and made parallel to the grinding and travel within less than two thousandths of an inch. So no matter what you do, that grinding head is going to travel parallel to the top of the table within two thousandths of an inch. If you adjust the grinder properly, or if you adjust the cutting unit properly, uh, you're going to grind it, and you're going to grind that reel into a perfect cylinder. But the best part is you can take that cutting unit off, okay, go out and mow it for a while, and put it back on, and if the adjustments are good still, no rock in the reel, it touches all the way across, you're good to go. That makes the touch-up grinds very fast and very easy. We're talking about two to three minutes to do a touch-up grind, which is half the time of anybody else. Um, for most guys, the difference between three minutes and five minutes on a touch grind doesn't mean a whole lot. But if you get in some of these big courses uh, where you've got a lot of cutting units, that makes a big difference, especially if you're grinding your reels every two to three weeks. So it's the combination of the precision and the speed, uh, and we, we carry that same philosophy over into the bed knife grinder. We, because of the dual grinding heads, we can grind both faces at the same time. And, uh, again, you can do a touch-up grind on a bed knife in about three, three to four minutes. So, and because of the V-supports, still get the very precise grind on it. So that you're not giving anything up to get the speed in terms of, of your precision. And I think those are the key factors for people where speed and precision are important. And, of course, being the ability to do relief, uh, our grinders alone, I think they should be looking at. All right. Good info. Um, tough question here. Always controversial. Doesn't matter which website on Twitter, Facebook, talking individually at the golf industry show or vice versa. Backlapping or no backlapping and why? You're asking me. I'm asking you. Okay. I know nothing about cutting grass. I know absolutely nothing about cutting. I don't have grass at my house, right? I got uh, ground cover and, and weeds. I also am not an expert on maintaining cutting units. Right? I know a lot about maintaining cutting units, but I'd say just about every technician out there knows more about maintaining cutting units than I do. Okay? What I know is grinders. Okay? 
and I know enough about the cutting units that I know what you need to do to cutting units to make them right. So that goes back to the philosophy that I had is that our cutting our grinders will grind the way that you want to grind. So if you want a back lap, you want to do this, if that works for you, I'm not going to argue with you because I'm not in a position to argue about it. Somebody tells me that you, you have to back lap, I'm saying, you know better than I do. If, you, if somebody else says no back lapping, uh, I'll, I'll say that too. Now, I will say this, we don't make backlappers anymore, okay? Part of that is because so many of the cutting units, backlapping is built into it, and part of it's because just there's so many people that just have eliminated backlapping from their, from their procedure uh, or their process. So um, my answer would be that I don't know, but the trend in the industry is away from backlapping. And the fact of the matter is, is that when you can take and put one of the cutting units up on our grinder and in two minutes, have it back to, to factory specs, getting it cylindrical and getting an edge on it, better edge than backlapping. Uh, why would you do that instead of backlap? Now, John Deere, they say, oh, you still have to backlap to get rid of the burr. Well, the way we grind, you don't get a burr, so I don't know. Anyway, you're right, it's controversial. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't give you a very satisfactory answer, but. I no, good. I thought it was a good answer. And, uh, you know, I think um, manufacturers, and this is just my. After talking to some people, um, listen, they don't want to get 100 calls about quality of cut a day. And not everyone knows how to grind the best in the world either, having traveled around to plenty of golf courses. And so sometimes backlapping is there, I think, as a tool to at least give you something. Mm -hmm. um, and well, the that's the way I see it. I mean, I, I just think that... If you don't have the tools to measure, let me give you one example. If you don't have the tools to measure to see or know what's going on with your cutting unit, and let's say you, you ground the reel and it's perfectly sharp all the way across, and you ground the bed knife and it's perfectly sharp all the way across, okay, but you've got a 30 thousandths taper in that reel. Mm -hmm. So when you go to adjust your bed knife up, you've got to twist one end of the bed knife up higher than the other, right? Now, what happens is, is when you start to twist that bed knife, all the manufacturers tell you they want that real cylindrical within less than 10 thousandths of an inch. Toro, uh, John Deere, um, uh, both want 10. Jacobson wants 7. And if you go beyond that, you start to put a bow in the bed knife shoe. Now, at about 15 thousandths of an inch taper on your reel, you start to get a 2 to 3 thousandths bow in your bed knife. Okay. And you're going to add about one or two thousandths worth of bow for every additional five thousandths of taper you have in your reel. So if you've got a 30 thousandths tapered reel, you could easily see that you could have a five thousandths bow in that bed knife. If you've got a five thousandths bow in that bed knife, you've got a gap in the middle or you've got a gap in the end, depending on the pivot points on the bed knife. And you don't know why it's not cutting. Okay? You've done everything right. You've ground it according to the, manufacturer's, the grinder manufacturer specifications. You've assembled it the way that the, the cutting unit manufacturer told you to cut and it's not cutting all the way across, what's your answer for that? You backlap it. And the backlapping will get it so it's the two match up um, and get rid of that bow in the fully assembled adjusted position. So the, the, the backlapping is sort of an uh, answer for all ills. Uh, if you've got a problem, you don't know how to fix it, you backlap it, that fixes it. So a Band-Aid. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. All right, so my favorite... Topic, last topic. So, real high to cut gauge. 
So I figure we might as well talk about how we got here with it. Okay. Okay. So um, I remember, and this is my memory of it, I remember getting frustrated when I was in Dallas and, you know, I had, what, three technicians there and we were getting ready for the PGA Tour event and we had two or three different gauges and of all those gauges, none of them, I checked the height of cut on one that my assistant had set up and none of them matched what, none of them matched what we were looking for. And so I'm like, man, what is going on? Then he gets the gauge and checks it, and it checks out fine. So I'm thinking, you know, how is he getting one number? I'm getting something else. And I I knew that there was – you always wanted to have one person setting up a machine. Um, And the the purpose for that was because you could put a little bit of pressure on that gauge and distort it a little bit. So you wanted – regardless, you wanted everything set the same. But there was no way for me to double check it. I just had to trust that whoever was doing it did it right and didn't make any mistakes doing it. And so I remember calling you and saying, listen, you know, what can we do? Actually, no, before calling you, I called Patterson. And I talked to Patterson and I said, listen, do you have this same problem? He's like, yeah, had it for years. And I'm like, so what if there was a way to create a gauge? And I think we were, we were doing the association at that time. I was like, what if you could create a gauge much like a stent meter and it'd be the standard for the golf business because we need something that doesn't move that we can duplicate. And I remember talking to him and we we're like, you know, listen, well, all right, well, that's great. We can, you know, having an idea about a gauge and it doing these things would be great, but who's going to make it? You know, we don't have time to make it and we don't have a manufacturing place to do that at. And, you know, how would we go about designing it? And then we were thinking, okay, well, you know, Foley and Bernhard are already making gauges. So it was the perfect solution to call you up and uh, say, you know, Mark, put a little pressure. We bought your grinders. Um, what about a high-to-cut gauge? And I remember the conversation going like, huh, well, what do you need that for and why would I make it type of thing? And and so the more we talked about it, we I believe we said, you know, well, listen, uh, Foley and Bernhard make them. So it just makes sense that you would. Well, my, think, my thinking on things like that is, first of all, I'm not just going to make another Me Too product. Right. And my first reaction was, well, there's at least a half a dozen people out there making these yes. things. Surely somebody's got the thing figured out by now, and there's <laughs> nothing you can do to make it right. But as the conversation went on, I realized that one guy designed it and five people copied it. Right. Okay. So there wasn't any... any um, uh, innovation in it uh, in the gauges at all. Everybody just made the same thing that everybody else was making. So, in talking to you and Patterson, the the issue was that one, you could uh, flex the gauge and get it whatever reading you wanted. Um, it was a, a a tapered tip that could vary based on how well you caught on the bed knife. If you if you pushed it in too hard, it would catch on the dial indicator stem. If you didn't push it on hard enough, it read on a different place on the uh, taper and also you could get wear in the top of the gauge and so you had to throw the gauge away after a couple of years with that in mind it gave me some places where I could try and improve it and I've actually got up on my shelf and if you go back multiple years on my blog you'll see the iteration of the designs that I had and of course the first thing you do when you have a beam that bends and you don't want it to bend you give it some depth and obviously you just can't keep making the bar thicker because it would be too heavy. And of course the solution for that is you make some kind of beam. 
an I-beam, a channel, or a tube. We have ended up on a tube. The first one I made was a two-by-four-inch tube, so it was four inches deep by two inches. And, boy, that thing was heavy, and we put all kinds of lightning holes in it, and, and that was a, a real – that one didn't fly. That one was black, wasn't it? I think yeah, I saw well, – it, it never got painted. It was mm. still in the raw steel format. And so we went through with a couple different iterations of it. The next problem was being able to calibrate it so that one gauge would read the same as the next is the same as the next. And we eliminated the, um, uh, the tapered blade catch and put a flat blade catch on it so that the blade catch would sit down flat on top of the bar. And the other thing we did is we actually precision machined the top of the, of the, of the tube so that it was the same at the place where the dial indicator was registering as it was when it was contacting the, the rollers. So you didn't get any variation between the, where the roller contacted the gauge and where the, where, the, where the dial indicator contacted the gauge. And, of course, it was made out of steel, so you wouldn't get the wear in it. And uh, that proved significantly better. We could, get, we could get consistent from gauge to gauge to gauge, from operator to operator to operator, within about one or two thousandths of an inch, which is, I think, well within the, the parameters that you gave me. Um, and we, we sold a lot of those things. Uh, first through IGSEMA. And uh, uh, then when IGCMA got uh, rolled into the GCSAA, uh, we switched it over to, to Turf Addict, and we sell a lot of them, sell a lot of them. When you sell a lot of them, you get a lot of them into people's hands, and you get a lot of feedback, okay? No design is perfect, especially not the first design out of the box. And the first issue that we really had, or the two issues that we had with it, um, First was, is that because we had a flat blade catch or a straight blade catch, it would work fine on a, on a, on a bed knife that was just ground and had a, or had a pretty good angle on it on the top face, or if it was just ground and contacted the ground surface on the top face. Where it got to be a problem is if you had a bed knife that had a lot of wear on it and the blade catch would catch on the worn part of the bed knife and it would wear different from one end to the other, so it would catch on two different places on the bed knife. So for that, we developed a tapered blade catch. Now, the problem with a tapered blade catch is it's not going to come down at the right place on the gauge bar, so we had to make a custom tool for calibrating it. It was a little razor blade-like thing that you could stick in there. And that worked reasonably well, but if you lost the tool, you were screwed, and you still you had to use a tool, and a little bit of a pain in the butt. Uh, the other issue that we had uh, was being able to recalibrate the the bar because we're using a thick bar inch and a half thick instead of three-eighths of an inch thick the distance between where the blade catches the top of the bar and the dial indicator is about triple so any variation in how the, the dial indicator mounts is amplified by the time it gets up to the to the to the blade catch and so the alignment of it is much more critical and we had a system that you could align it but it was fairly complex uh, I think it had uh, five bolts in it uh, to you had to loosen to get everything lined up properly. And you could do it. took a couple special tools. Because of that, we always had free recalibration. If anybody had a gauge go out, they could just send it back to us. We'd recalibrate it the same day and send it back to them. So we got thinking about it, oh, probably about six months ago, talking to you about it, and decided that we probably, now's a good time to start looking at some improvements that we can make to the, the, to the height of cut gauge. And the first thing that we wanted to do was to go with a standard tapered blade catch, full circle. 
and that necessitated the elimination of the floating um, guard. So we replaced the floating guard with two fixed precision brass pins that allowed us to use a full circle blade catch with a taper on it. Now you can use it, uh, you can get it with either a straight blade catch or a taper blade catch if you, if you want to try and make it read the same as an old style indicate, uh, old real height cut gauge, you can do that. Um, but the, the thing that we were able to do is because the brass pins are precision sized and located, the edge of the, the leading edge of the brass pins line up perfectly with the hole in the bar so that when the, the blade catch goes down in the bar, the place where the bar contacts the blade catch is exactly the same place where the blade contacts the blade catch. So that makes it very easy to get your calibration, just like we did with the old one. So that gives us a, 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 a real good calibration, gives us the, the taper blade catch that everybody wants. And the, the, the last thing was coming up, and it's the thing that's really been giving us grief, coming up with a way to mount the dial indicator and make it so it's easily aligned and adjusted. And uh, Carl, my son, who's also our general manager, also studying to be an engineer, has been working on it. And the first one we made went together reasonably well. Prototype worked. I said, okay, we got this concept down. Sent it out. Everybody liked it. Brought it back in. Tried to build three more, and they wouldn't work. The problem is the inconsistency of the, of the dial indicator lug. Uh, the place where you mount it. It's a die-cast piece. It wasn't very precise, and it, it just made it difficult to align everything. We found a precision-machined lug that has a slot in it. Carl made a bracket for it, and that works much, much better. The other thing that did for us is it eliminated the big, bulky handle that we had, and we're able to put a nice pistol grip handle on it. So we've also cut the weight of it by over half a pound. So uh, they're in production now, pilot production now. Uh, we hope to start shipping them probably within about a week. All right, no, that's uh, great news, and I know there's been quite a few people that have ordered them, and they've been on back order and, and uh, wondering when they're going to get them. And um, for those that listen to this, uh, I'll post a picture up. Uh, Mark brought one with him, so I'll take a picture of that and, and post it up so you can see exactly what it looks like. But exciting news there. Uh, we've been using a prototype version of that for a couple of months now. Um, and it's worked great for us, no issues, um, and they've made some change. As Mark just explained, they've made some changes to it even beyond uh, the one that we've been using. So well, the, the big difference between the one you're using and the one we're using now is that one had a nice lug on the back, and everything was easy to adjust. It's just not consistently easy to adjust once we got it into production. So right. the, the actual function of it is going to be exactly the same, with the exception that it's now two bolts that hold the whole thing together rather than five bolts, it's much more intuitive in terms of doing the alignment of it. So most, I think most technicians will be able to look at this and figure out how to get it aligned properly pretty easily. But even if they don't, we'll still have the free uh, recalibration of them anytime they want. No, that's great because, you know, I know there's quite a few people that the normal, the normal comment I get is, really, we got to send it back. We can't just adjust it ourselves. Um, and so, yeah, you know, if you want it done right, we need to send it back and then you'll get it back. And, you know, for the most part, um, you'd have, okay, well, let me order another gauge so I can send this one back and then we can get that one. Um, but, uh, no, great, great news there. I did get a, uh, a call-in question for you. Okay. Um, this comes You're from smiling. South Dakota, Mike Kriz. Mike Kriz, yeah. 
And uh, he was curious when you're going to make your next blog post because he's been watching your blog and he hasn't really seen anything. And in talking to him today, he sounded a little down that, you know, you were coming to do a podcast and you hadn't done any blog posts. So uh, just to clear this up for Mike, uh, when's your planned next podcast? I'm, or, uh, or uh, My next blog, co- blog post is going to be this weekend, and it's going to be talking about doing a podcast with Stephen Tucker. <laughs> there you go, Mike. So when- I, I, I really feel bad about that. Part of the problem has been COVID, for obvious. For most of COVID, I was working from home. Um, and we did actually have one employee who caught it from his wife. Um, and uh, fortunately, he, it wasn't too serious. He got over it in a week, and he was back to work after a couple of weeks. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm getting up there, and I, I'm trying to be safe. And, in fact, Larry Robinson, our, our sales um, manager for the Western United States, he caught it, apparently walking through Walmart or something. He's doing fine now. He's pretty much over it. But when you don't go into the office and you're not, you're not out traveling, you're not contacting people, you're not – doing things. Um, I spent most of that time I was off finishing up the database they were working on. And in fact, if you look at the, my blog posts, the last few were just about the database. Most guys don't care about that computer stuff. So I just haven't had a lot to write about um, because I haven't been talking to people. I haven't been out visiting people. Um, so I'll try and do better. <laughs> I, I, and I knew this. I, you know, I was very religious about doing it because and I did it every week, even if it was just a, a garbage one because the minute you miss one week, you miss two weeks, and then you miss a month, and you're, you're done. So hopefully my New Year's resolution will be I'll back, back to doing them on a regular basis. All right, Mike. So you've heard it. I've got your question answered for you. So uh, look for that pot or that, uh, that you, blog post coming. Even if Mike's the only one that reads it, but that's okay. <laughs> no, there's more. I, I definitely know that there's more people that read it. Yep. Um, it stirs some conversation on occasion, so it's good to read it. But – um, no, thank you, Mark. I appreciate you coming, uh, explain a little bit about SIP to people. Um, you know, it's exciting to see the continuation of things coming. Um, I know, you know, one of the things I've noticed is buying a grinder today doesn't mean that that will be the same grinder three or four months from now, um, because of your dedication to making sure that technicians are taken care of and, the complaints that they they may have, uh, you try to address. And I know the manufacturing challenges with addressing problems on the fly, um, as I've heard from many people. Um, I think the uh, the great thing about it on our side of things is knowing that, you know, when we do have problems, there's someone there looking out for us to try to help us solve them. Yeah, we have that. We have what we call the one, two, three rule. So if enough people have a question with it or a problem with it. If one person asks me, I say, I've got this problem, I'll think about it. I'll put it in the back of my mind. If two people have the, have the same problem, then I really start to seriously think about it. By the time I get the third person having a problem with it, I'm going to do something about it. And I don't have to wait to a model year. I just do it based on serial numbers. Uh, and, of course, the plus side of that is not only I do make the changes, and I'll make the changes just as soon as I can get it into production if it's, if it's a good change, but every single change that we make is a change that can be added to the very first machine that we made. In fact, we just got in on trade-in a couple of weeks ago, serial number one. Now, serial number one, was we built that in 1994, and it was remanufactured in 2005. And the guy just wanted a new one. We brought it back, and it's we're just going to have to go through it, uh, make some repairs to it, uh, add a couple of features that we've changed, 
but I can take that, that serial number one and put every single feature on it that we've had on every grinder that we've, on the grinder we make now with the, excess, with the exception of adjustable legs. So I can, I can make it to have every feature and function that's on the modern grinder. So, and that's true with, with our bed knife grinder too. The nice thing about the pallet design that when we came up with it is that you can get a new pallet for it or a better pallet and, and whatever. And that's something that we think is important. Um, one of my salesmen came up with the concept is that we want you to be a, a customer for life. That means you, you only have to buy one grinder for the rest of your life. Uh, I don't necessarily want you to do that, but <laughs> if you do, it, it'll last. And you can get it updated to be just as good as any modern grinder. No, I think it's great. And uh, we're very appreciative. I'll just speak on behalf of all the people that have them and the ones that have been able to call and talk to you and and uh, get you to help us work on num- numerous things. I know uh, throughout the industry, numerous other people have called, and you know whether it's helping explain something on a forum post or it's, or it's uh, working on a piece of equipment for us or whatever the case may be. Um, so we're all very appreciative for uh, your helping us all out. Well, it's, it's good for me, too. It's how I learn. Right. And so, uh, and the more knowledge I have, I, I can apply that to the design of the grinders and make them better keep making them better. I mean, I think probably about seven or eight years ago, I was sitting around thinking, I said, well, there's not much I can do to these grinders to make them any better. I'm pretty much done engineering for now. And probably about six months later, boom, V pallet, right? Something else came up. And now I've got more stuff on my plate uh, that I know what to do with in terms of design projects ongoing. Well, it helps when Patterson and I are busy Um, and we can't call you. (laughs) I don't know. It's, that's where I get part of my motivation from is, you know, you're not doing this right, Mark. This is, this is wrong. This is a real pain in the butt for me. Fix it. And I get that phone call and I figure I better do something about it. Yeah. Well, thank you again. I also th- want to thank you for having uh, Mike. I know Mike's coming over for the LPGA event, uh, bringing, bringing us a grinder to use uh, for the week and, and then also coming to help out um, and, I'm sure he's going to bring back a number of ideas. I think we have five or six technicians that will be in the shop uh, working to get the cutting units ready for the week. So um, I'm sure he's going to pick some things up. He's going to be able to share some things with the guys and and hopefully bring a load of new ideas back uh, to keep you busy. You're talking about Mike Rollins, my uh, yep. son-in-law slash uh, sales manager, right? Yep, that's yeah. him. Yep. He started off last year. I think the very first thing he did was come over, came over and help you. And, uh, boy, he got a lot out of that, a lot out of that real quick. Well, it's great. You know, it's great having people uh, not only out there to help sell grinders and, and show your products, but uh, coming to learn. I, d- I can't, you know, just thinking through my career, I don't know that there's been another company that's offered to send someone there to learn how to do things. And, you know, it says a lot that, that a company is willing to let the customer show them what the right way of doing things are so they can take those ideas back and improve the product. Well, that's like I said. Virtually every technician out there knows more about uh, maintaining cutting units than I know. Obviously, just every superintendent out there knows a whole lot more about uh, maintaining grass than I know. What I know is how, to, is how to do mechanical design, and I understand how grinders work, and I know how to make them uh, do what you tell me you want them to do. So, but to do that, i got to talk to you guys. I mean, I would... Just going back a little bit, and then we'll wrap it up. But uh, um, I had as many as three salesmen on the road during a period of time, 
uh, when the uh, golf industry sort of collapsed, I think it was in the mid 2000s. Um, I had to let, uh, actually, I let both two of the three go, and I took over for the for the second one. And I said, I'm just going to do this for a couple years, uh, and until we can get you know things get settled down, the economy comes back, and then we can go out there. But it got to the point where I was getting so much good information, being out in the field, doing demonstrations, talking to technicians. I, I did it from, well, 2004 until last year, almost 15, 16 years I was on the road. Uh, no, that's not, is that right? Maybe 2007, somewhere in that range. But for at least, ten, at least 10, 12 years I was on the road, and I, I didn't, it was the most productive time that I had because, again, you're on the road, you have got there, you see a problem firsthand, and then you've got one to two-day drive back to Tampa to think about it, Without people bothering you, by the time you got back to Tampa, you got a couple ideas, and you know you can start trying to implement it. So it's been good. Well, thank you again. I appreciate everything, and uh, we look forward to talking to you again in the future. Sounds good. Thanks, Stephen. All right, have a good one, Mark.